Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing okay. It's like 20 degrees outside. It's a a nice, beautiful, lovely day. It's beautiful. We just recently were out shopping, grocery shopping, and... The sun and the heat kind of got to me like a little bit, like I'm feeling really tired after that trip. Yeah. But what got to me more was how many people there were outside just congregating and gathering and playing fucking hacky sack and not a single mask on any of them. Everybody just, you know, six, seven people sitting in a circle eating their, their picnic on a school playground like... The fuck you doing, people? Yeah. It being warm doesn't make you immune to viruses. Yeah. Yes, it's frustrating. It's it's so frustrating. Like, Alberta's doing pretty good on the coronavirus front in some areas. We've got a lot of hospital beds. We've got, like, five times the beds that we do of cases. So we're set, like, if things suddenly spike. We've got testing available for every single citizen. So, like, that's good, but, like, our number of cases is still rising, the number of deaths is still rising, Calgary in specific is, like, a hot spot. Yep. Fucking stay at home, and if you really, if you just, if you're gonna just die if you don't play fucking hacky sack, put on a fucking mask. That's all. That's my public service announcement. for today but maybe don't play hacky sack like maybe this is not the time but how am i going to get my hacky in you know i need my hacky just i'm sure there's like a wii sports hacky sack thing what if i don't have a wii i'm sure you can get one for five (laughs) dollars how are you sarah yeah keeping on keeping on (laughs) just surviving Uh uh-huh with my mask on um, hey, have you sneezed in your mask yet? That's not fun. No, I haven't. Yeah, I sneezed because of, like, it's allergy season. Yeah. And I was wearing my mask, and it was not <laughs> the best. Yeah. But, you know, we but watch hey, these things anyways. Hey, that's and what it's for. Exactly, exactly. But otherwise, doing okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching The Strange Door. From 1951, directed by Joseph Pevney. And I'm really excited to talk about this movie today. It involves some returning faces who we haven't seen for a long time. Yeah. Uh, so I'm pretty stoked. The, of course, you know, the actors' names, huge, big on the posters. Uh, the other thing that's really big on the posters is, like, based on the story by Robert Louis Stevenson in, like, big letters. And, like, so we've talked a lot about how in the early days of horror, you know, the trick of, like, oh, but this is a literary adaptation is, was very important. Yeah, just to try to, like, glean some legitimacy. Yeah, and stave off, like, criticisms. and. But I feel like by 1951 that's not really, like, necessary anymore. Now, Robert Louis Stevenson has, like, a track record in, you know, 
horror stories that have been turned into movies. I'm thinking Jekyll and Hyde, and I'm thinking The Body Snatcher. Yeah. So I'm not sure if there's been others, but those are the two I remember right now. But I don't think, like, the recent release two months earlier of Son of Dr. Jekyll is what we're trying to cash in on here. No, I have a feeling that the name grab there is based on that original purpose of trying to get some legitimacy. Because horror has been a B-movie mm-hmm. genre for a while. Uh, and it has, it were in 1951, and there haven't been many horror movies this year. Yeah. Uh, not many super good ones. Yeah. Um, and I think the last time we had a pretty good horror movie, it was like mid-ish 40s. Like, you know, they they aren't super frequent. Right. I mean, Think From Another World was pretty good. Yeah, but I'm saying that, like, not very frequent still. Like, it, sure. like... The genre's been a little fallow. Yes. Um, I feel like it claiming this name of Robert Louis Stevenson, um, I mean, if you're adapting one of his stories, why not go hog wild with his name? But it's also to be like, we're not like those other bad B-movie, poverty mm. row movie, mm-hmm. horror movies. We are a, like, sophisticated horror movie. I also wonder if it has anything to do with the immense financial success in 1950 of Walt Disney's Treasure Island, based on the novel by Robert Louis Stevenson. Probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. But I will say that the short story in particular this is based on, I have never heard of. So, can you tell me anything about it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me remind you about Robert Louis Stevenson's life first. Mm -hmm, Yeah, that seems useful. Robert Louis Stevenson was born in 1850 in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, Now, ill health kind of followed him throughout his whole life, um, but especially in childhood. Um, He had frequent and chronic bronchitis. Mm. Um, Now, we don't know that for sure, but that's the most likely culprit as to what ailed him. Right, for sure. He was an only child, so he was taught by private tutors, uh, since his illnesses kind of kept him from school. Right. Um, But he was always inventing stories. Before he learned how to write, he would be dictating them to his mother and his nurse. (laughs) And then um, once he learned how to write, he was just like going hog wild. (laughs) That reminds me of me. (laughs) Now, both parents were pretty supportive of uh, this interest of his. But when it came time to choose a vocation, Robert Louis Stevenson first tried engineering in the footsteps of his own father at the University of Edinburgh. Um, But he was not ultimately very interested in his studies. He gave up engineering, decided to do this writing full-time, but agreed with his parents that, as a backup plan, he would study law and pass the bar exam. Mm. So, you know, if this writing thing doesn't work out, at least you can be a lawyer. Mm Mm-hmm. One thing about studying at the University of Edinburgh is it introduced Stevenson to um, many active figures in the London literary circles. So he made a lot of pals in that way. He also made a lot of friends as he would go traveling with his family for um, health reasons. Sure. Uh, He frequently would travel from London to France and other places across Europe. And one year, he met the American woman 
Fanny Vandegrift Osborne in Paris while she was separated from her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, now, her husband was back in America, but she had her two kids with her. And Stevenson was smitten, just couldn't stop thinking about her. When they met again a few years later in 1877, they became romantically involved, and he planned to follow her back to America. Now, she traveled back to America to finalize her divorce and get her own stuff in order. After she left, Stevenson followed, uh, but became ill because he could only afford a like very uh, cheap passage right. from continental Europe to the Americas. Right, he's he's down dancing with the Irish folk and you know meeting Leonardo DiCaprio. Sure, he did not travel on the Titanic, but no. yes, <laughs> that is the general idea. Um, so he he got sick as he traveled. Uh, across the sea, and then sick as he made his way from, like, one side of the States to the other. <sighs> it took him a few years. <laughs> oh my god. He and Fanny were finally reunited in 1879, and they married a few months later. Wow. Once married, they headed back to Europe and traveled between London, France, and then later, um, the tropical Pacific Islands for Stevenson's health. Right. They settled in Samoa, and Stevenson died at age 44 in 1894 um, in Samoa. Hmm. Now, Stevenson has had a very long literary career. He never <laughs> had to fall back onto being a lawyer. Um, though, as we saw with The Body Snatcher, some of his legal studies gave him inspiration for fiction. Right. But his first big piece of uh, long fiction was Treasure Island, published in 1883. And then in 1886, The Strange Case of Jekyll and Hyde was published. This short story is actually fairly early in his writing career. Its uh, full name is The Sire de Malatroit's Door. Okay. And it was published when he was 28 years old in 1878. Oh, wow. So way, way earlier. Yeah, he... It would have been like a year after he met Fanny ah, and got involved with her. For sure. I can see why they changed the title for the movie. Yes. Now, while it was published in 1878 in the uh, London magazine Temple Bar magazine, um, it was collected in Stevenson's first collection of short stories, New Arabian Nights, in 1882. Okay. Which was also, like, very successful. Yeah, and that's still before Treasure Island. Yes. Something that's unique about this short story is it's set in France. Typically, Stevenson's stories were set in England or, you know, Scotland. Within, like, a UK context. Exactly, yeah. yeah. What's also kind of notable with it is uh, the way it sets up its atmosphere, its... um. A, a dark and kind of gothic story. Um, it really describes some unique gothic architecture in uh, France. And it's set in Burgundy during the 100 Years War. Oh, that's okay. So in like the 1400s. Yeah. And the story goes, Cavalier and veteran Denis de Billier is in Burgundy during the 100 Years War. And he has a a note that grants him passage through the city and through the country. And he feels pretty confident in himself. Um, So he's out at night and stays out past curfew. Okay. There are some drunk soldiers coming around. And so to try to avoid them 
and getting, like, bothered at night, uh, he ducks into an alcove, and the door behind him opens and shuts, and he's trapped inside. Oh. Gotta hate it when that happens. (laughs) There's a light at the top of the stairs in the room, where he finds a man waiting for him, and this man is the Sire de Malatroit. Now, uh, Malatroit won't allow Dennis to leave, because... He intends for Dennis to marry his niece, Blanche. <laughs> so okay. she, she is pregnant from uh, an affair with a young captain. Uh-huh. Now, this trap was intended to catch the captain. Okay, so this fair. is the thing I was wondering about. Was, like, was he targeting Dennis, or was he just targeting any young man who walked by? Any young man. Because, see, Blanche needs to be married... Before the sun rises. Not for any kind of supernatural thing. The the sire is just like, no, she needs to be married. She's, like, she's pregnant. Like, she, we need to get her. He's, he's like, standing there with a shotgun. Right. Being like, we need to have this wedding. Sure. Not literally, but yeah. Yeah. And Blanche is like, this isn't the guy, uncle. And Dennis is like, yeah, I mean, like, she's beautiful, but I, I think I'm going to have to pass on, on marrying her. Like, I don't even know her... Yeah, I'm good. And um, Malatroit is like, mm, I don't think you understand. It's marry or die. <laughs> now, Dennis does try to like go for his sword, but then the town guard and priest come out, and they're like, no, like we're enforcing this. Whoa! So yeah, that's the situation Dennis is put in. Now, Blanche says, oh, well, to save your life, like I'll marry you. But Dennis is too proud to accept. <laughs> um, and so he resigns himself to death. He's like, no, I'm not going to, like, trap you in a possibly loveless marriage. Like, I'm I'm too proud for that. So, no, I'll, I'll die. I've lived a good life. My uh, estate will go to my family. Like, it won't necessarily be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Through the night, Dennis and Blanche talk, and she talks about her own desire to be loved and she goes yeah you know what i'm not going to marry you even if you changed your mind because i want to be with someone who loves me i want a a happy marriage and i'm not just going to go with the guy who just happened to fall through the door just for the sake of my own life because she is also being um given the choice of marry or die right so they both are kind of resigned to this fate um and through the night, they talk about duty, nobility, um, even Dennis's own past, and how death can possibly be a good thing. And by the morning, they fall in love. So they get married, and they live in love. So that's that's the end. That so all no worked dies. out. Exactly, it all worked out. Um, and this the structure of this short story is almost like these two talking heads um, between Blanche and Dennis talking about almost philosophically about um, being resigned to death, about, like, um, yeah, love and honor and duty. Interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how they turn that into the movie that I am expecting. Okay, interesting. Yeah, this is apparently um, a very good short story of Stevenson's. It's not super well-known. It is well-regarded, at the very least. Um, As far as it being considered horror. It's not really considered a horror short story. Um, it's definitely macabre in the way that he sets up the atmosphere and um, the 
alcove and the door itself is set in like this gothic architecture with gargoyles and stuff. Um, and then, of course, the prospect of marry or die, mm-hmm. it can be pretty um, spooky, but because it has that happy ending, yeah. um, it's, uh, and like, no one dies. Right, yeah. Um, it's kind of, like, more macabre and eerie than outright horror. Sure. What I do like is, so in the period of Stevenson's life that he wrote this, he is traveling to go to a completely different continent right. for his love. Yes. Who, by the way, is like 10 years older. Right. And has two kids already. Mm-hmm. Um, the end of the short story, Dennis is like, I don't even care that your baby is with someone else. Like, I don't care. Kid's going to be mine. We'll be happy. You know, very noble. Sure. Um, and it just seems very inspired by Stevenson's own love. Yeah. Um, and also the resignation towards death makes sense for someone who has been, like, incredibly ill through most of his life. Yeah, absolutely. So, the movie, The Strange Door, is a universal international picture. Okay. And you might be saying, but Ben, hasn't Universal abandoned horror and other B-movie genres since their merger with International and the buyout by Rank Organization? Yeah, well, they shuttered their B-movie units. So, yes, you are right, but events have progressed rather quickly since 1946. Okay. Yeah, I guess it's like five years later. So, as a reminder, the result of the rank takeover was that the rank organization distributed Universal International's films in the UK, Eagle Lion distributed Rank's films in the U.S., And then Eagle Lion made B Pictures to accompany the Universal A Pictures. In this period, in the late 1940s, all three entities, which, because they were all, like, both producing and then releasing each other's movies, are kind of easier to think of as just, like, one amorphous thing. Uh, But they all had major critical and commercial hits during this period. Uh, Films like... Dead of Night, David Lean's Brief Encounter, uh, I Know Where I'm Going by Powell and Pressburger, The Killers, starring Burt Lancaster and Ava Gardner, and the uh, groundbreaking science fiction film Destination Moon are all kind of big hits that they had in this period. Nice. But, unfortunately, for Rank... He had overextended himself with all these acquisitions. You may recall that at this point, he's one of, like, only two major film studios in the UK. Yeah. He owns basically all of the sound stages, uh, bought up, like, all of the theaters, you know, and then he owns all this stuff in the US and, and just all of these different companies. And the focus on producing fewer films at a higher quality while producing all these hits, it wasn't healthy as a business model on the whole. Because when you zoomed out, the organization as a whole was spending more money than it was taking in. Um, Because while each individual movie would be successful, you're spending so much on each one and you're producing so few that you don't really have like enough 
opportunity to be making money coming in. Isn't that the reason why studios were making B-movies? Yes, precisely. Yeah, because it's like cheap schlock, but it you're offs- going to make a profit anyway. And because the margin for making that profit is so much bigger, it's going to fund the big A pictures. Yes, that's right. So, by the end of 1949, Rank was in debt for £16 million, and so he had to make some changes. Yeah. He sold all of the studios, uh, that is the sound stages, that he owned, except for Pinewood, which was the largest, and he also closed down the British production arm of the Rank organization. So now they just rented studio space and then distributed films, but they weren't making their own films. Sure. Uh, And that led to sort of a big exodus of top British filmmakers of the day, like Palin Pressburger, like David Lean, because they now no longer had a studio to be under contract to, so they had to go and find work elsewhere. Um, With Rank no longer making films... It no longer made sense to have Eagle Lion around to distribute them in the U.S. And so Eagle Lion's distribution deal with Rank was terminated. And the head of Eagle Lion, Arthur J. Krim, was offered a position as head of United Artists, uh, which was also struggling at the time. And he was basically being offered the chance to, like, get United Artists back on its feet. And so Rank decided... Cool, I'll just sell your contract to United Artists and sell Eagle Lion to them as well. And when United Artists bought Eagle Lion, they basically just closed it down and absorbed it rather than keeping it as like a sub-label. Yeah. Now, as for Universal International, uh, with all these changes happening, Rank just kind of lost interest in owning an American studio. He just didn't see the point anymore. And he sold it. To Decca Records. Okay. So Decca is that like a music company? That's a record label. Yeah. Yeah. Well, records could also be like we archive things. Sure. So Decca Records was a British record label founded in 1929 with a U.S. branch that was launched in 1934. Decca found success even through the Depression thanks to their roster of talent. Uh, that they had under contract, which included Bing Crosby, Louis Armstrong, Count Basie, Billie Holiday, the Andrews Sisters, Judy Garland, the Ink Spots, the Dorsey Brothers, Ethel Smith, and Sister Rosetta Thorpe, among many others. Nice. So, by 1939, Decca and EMI were the only record companies left in Britain, and in 1941, British Decca divested itself of American DECA, basically sold their interest in American DECA to American DECA, and American DECA became its own separate company in 1942. Pretty much immediately thereafter, American DECA released the best-selling single of all time, Bing Crosby's White Christmas. Yes, yeah. So, sorry, Rank sold Universal to the American or the European DECA? So it was to American DECA uh, that Rank sold... Universal, making the co-founder of American DECA, Milton Rackmill, now the president of Universal International. So time to pump out some musicals. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, So to save 
Universal International's Sinking Fortunes. The studio started producing low-budget B-movies again, and, you know, low-budget, like, franchise series movies again, uh, under the strategy of flooding the market with cheap product in order to generate some quick cash and income to, like, raise up the sinking ship. Yeah. You know, hustle now and then invest for the future. Correct. Now, although DECA was in favor of lean budgets, um, their version of Universal International was able to create a stable of big-name stars uh, similar to DECA Records' stable of big-name stars, and they were able to do that through a new innovation in movie economics, the percentage deal. Okay. So, before this point, right... Movie stars had long-term contracts with studios, and the way those contracts worked was you're, you were a studio employee. And so, yeah, you're getting, like, a hundred bucks a week. Yeah, you have a salary, and it's not particularly tied to, like, what movies you're doing, and, you know, then you're renegotiating that salary as you become a bigger star, right? Now, with the collapse of vertical integration and the studios all having, like, less money, and there was also that legal case uh, that we talked about on the show where, like, they determined that contracts of the length that the studios were using was, like, illegal, and all this <laughs> other kind of stuff. A lot of movie stars were just ditching long-term contracts altogether and basically, like, just taking movies as individual, like, jobs, right? Acting as freelancers, almost. Yeah. Now, the thing was... Uh, Universal couldn't afford to have big-name stars in their movies with those salary requests that they were making. Um, for example, uh, Jimmy Stewart wanted to make some movies with Universal. Uh, he wanted to have Universal make a film idea of his called Harvey. Have you ever seen that movie? Nope. It's really charming. Jimmy Stewart plays uh, this guy who has, like, this adult grown man who has a what everyone else thinks is an imaginary friend, uh, but what he insists is a puka, uh, like an Irish supernatural being. Uh, but regardless, whether it's an imaginary friend or a real creature, it is a six-foot-three rabbit, and its name is Harvey. Um, so Jimmy Stewart really wanted to make that movie. Universal uh, really wanted to have him make a western for them called Winchester 73. Now, Stewart's rate per movie at this time was $200,000, and Universal could not afford that. So instead, they offered Jimmy Stewart a percentage of the profits on the movie, uh, specifically like, you know, the, the, the net, right? So not box office gross, but box office net. And so he made a deal for 50% of the movie's profits in lieu of salary. So if the movie cost ten dollars and mm -hmm. it made fifteen dollars, he's getting he... two fifty. Yeah. Yeah. Half of the five dollars that they made. Right, exactly. Which means that how much they're actually paying him completely is determined by whether the movie is a success or a failure. Yeah. Um, which makes it pretty risky on his part. Right, and kind of safe on the studio's part. Yeah. Um, however, the reason why this is a good deal for the actor is because you get a salary, right? Uh, Stewart's 200K. You're getting paid that as a lump sum. 
when you're getting percentage of profits, you're getting like regular weekly like royalty payments almost. And what that means is that no matter what that money comes out to, whether it's more or less than the salary you would have made, you're paying less tax on it. Oh, Because sure. you're not getting it as a big lump sum. Now, in the case of Winchester 73, Stuart ended up taking home 600K oh, because dang. it was a huge fucking hit. Yeah. Uh, so he got a lot of money and got to make Harvey with Universal, which was also a hit. It's a very charming film. Um, it sounds like it could could either be charming or really, like, unbearable. Yeah, no, it's, it's fun. Um, everyone else in Hollywood kind of like, turned all at once and looked at Jimmy Stewart and they were like, wait, (laughs) I want that. Uh, And this attracted a lot of actors and Universal began to be able to develop new stars like Rock Hudson, Burt Lancaster, and Tony Curtis. Mm -hmm. So that brings us to The Strange Door, uh, a return to horror for Universal. And in the somewhat old-fashioned mode... Of the period gothic melodrama. Yeah. Which is a little bit, like, not what the current zeitgeist is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Universal's making B-movies again, and so if we're going to dip our toes into horror, it makes sense that they kind of are wanting to start with, like, the version of horror that Universal was good at. Yeah. Right? Which is the gothic melodramas. Yeah, it makes sense. The film is produced by Ted Richmond, who was a veteran movie producer going back to 1940, including 1944's The Soul of a Monster for Republic Pictures. The film's director is Joseph Pevney, who was born the son of a Jewish watchmaker in New York City in 1911. He did not become Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the same origin story. He went into directing, not like his own like physics, like scientist stuff. Actually, Joseph Pevney got his start as a vaudeville singer before becoming a stage actor and then a film actor by the late 1940s. He directed his first feature film, the film noir Shakedown, for Universal International in 1950. The Strange Door, made a year later, was his sixth film. Dang. Yeah, Pevney was very good at, like, working quickly. Because of that, by the 1960s, he had become quite successful directing television. Uh, throw a dart at any 1960s TV show. You're going to find some episodes directed by Joseph Pevney. Um, but probably what he's most remembered as is as one of the rotating directors on the original Star Trek. Uh, he directed 14 out of 79 episodes, making him the second most prolific Star Trek director. And the episodes he directed included classics like Arena, a.k.a. the episode where Kirk fights the Gorn, A Taste of Armageddon, a.k.a. the episode where wars are fought by computer, Devil in the Dark, that's the one with the Horda in the mines. Oh, yeah. City on the Edge of Forever. Oh, yeah. Which is typically considered the best episode of the series. Amok Time, that's the one where (laughs) Kirk and Spock fight to the death on Vulcan. The Trouble with Tribbles. Yeah. And Journey to Babel, which is the episode that introduced Spock's parents. Yeah. Wow. Cool. He continued to direct TV until his retirement in 1986, and he passed away in 2008 at age 96. Wow. 
Now, the big draw of the film was its star, Charles Lawton. Yeah. Retur- well, I, th- I thought you were going to say a different name, but... Uh... Nope. Charles Lawton <laughs> has top bill, Sarah. And he is returning to the horror genre for the first time in 20 years. And this is also his reunion with the other big star in the movie, Boris Karloff. Yeah. Who is returning to serious horror after his appearance in the 1949 horror comedy, Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer, Boris Karloff. (sighs) I really want to watch that. Um, Yeah, it's interesting that they're reuniting here because when I was reading up on the short story and reading small excerpts of it, um, just to get a better idea of what was going on, it really reminded me of the old dark house, hmm. the way that these people were kind of trapped in a house and discussing, philosophizing about life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's cool that these guys are coming back, because I think the last time that they were together was the old dark house. That's correct. And uh, I believe Charles Lawton's character in the movie is the equivalent to the sire de Malatroit in the story. Oh, really? I assume that would have been Karloff. No. Um, Karloff's character actually doesn't exist in the short story. Oh, okay. Now, we haven't seen Lawton since Island of Lost Souls back in 1932, but both of the films we've seen of him for the show are in the top ten. Old Dark House is at number four, and Island of Lost Souls is at number seven. Uh, So, you know, kind of a high standard here. Uh, The reason we haven't seen Lawton in 20 years is because Charles Lawton managed to get out of horror while it was still considered an A-picture genre. Mm -hmm. So he was able to transition to acclaimed roles in historical dramas like Nero in Cecil B. DeMille's The Sign of the Cross in 1932, the title character in Alexander Korda's The Private Lives of Henry VIII in 1934, uh, for which he won a Academy Award for Best Actor. Uh, he was Inspector Javert in the 1935 version of Les Miserables, and Captain Bly in the famous 1935 version of Mutiny on the Bounty, which is one of his most acclaimed roles. He was cast as Claudius for a film version of I, Claudius in 1937, the shooting of which was aborted following a car accident suffered by lead actress Merle Oberon, which was kind of just the last straw in what had been a very troubled production up to that point. In 1939, he played a sympathetic Quasimodo in RKO's socially conscious 1939 version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. His career suffered during World War II, Uh, during which time he gave what are considered subpar performances in very middling films. And after World War II, he was suffering a lot of money troubles. So he sort of, you know, concentrated more on quantity than quality and just was trying to, like, act in whatever he could to make money to help with his money troubles, Uh, which meant that he wasn't really appearing in the kind of prestigious films he used to. And it is at that point in his career that we find him acting in The Strange Door. Okay. The last time we saw Boris Karloff was in 1946's Bedlam. The decline of the horror genre was hard on Karloff, who bounced around from studio to studio and genre to genre, taking what parts he could, much like he did in the late 1930s, the last time that horror kind of had a break. He was in seven films in the five years since we last saw him, 
including as the title villain in RKO's Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome. So is he Dick Tracy or Gruesome? I said the title villain. He's Gruesome. (laughs) And that was the fourth and final film in the RKO Dick Tracy series. He was even willing to return to hated Universal Studios in 1948 for the Civil War film Taproots before parodying himself in the 1949 Abbott and Costello film. This was his next movie after that, two years later. Okay. So still with Universal? Yes. Um, so maybe he had a fairly good experience on those last two Universal films. Well, you know, they're under new management. That's true. The female lead actress here is Sally Forrest, who was born Catherine Feeney in 1928 in San Diego. Her parents taught dance classes, and Catherine studied dance from a very young age. She began appearing in films in the late 1940s as a chorus girl in MGM musicals. Her contract was with MGM, but to get starring roles, she had to appear in indie films, Uh, under the name of Sally Forrest. Her big break was working with indie director Ida Lupino, who cast her in her controversial 1949 film Not Wanted, about a young, unwed mother. Forrest would appear in two more Lupino films before MGM finally gave her a lead role in the 1950 film noir Mystery Street, starring Ricardo Montalban and Elsa Lanchester. She was lent to Universal International for The Strange Door, and she was later lent to RKO in 1953 for Son of Sinbad, a film that would be delayed and released till 1955 due to Howard Hughes' fights with the Breen office over Forrest's skimpy costume. All right. Never change, Howard Hughes. (laughs) Well, maybe change a little bit. She continued to appear in film and television until the early 60s when she retired and she passed away in 2015 at age 86. Cool. Another familiar face for us in the cast is 48-year-old English actor Alan Napier, Ah. who we know from The Invisible Man Returns, Cat People, The Uninvited, Isle of the Dead, and House of Horrors. By 1951, he had also appeared in Orson Welles' Macbeth and the Ingrid Bergman version of Joan of Arc, among many other films. Today, he is, of course, best known as Alfred on the 1966 Batman television series. The editor of The Strange Door was an old hand at Universal Studios. Uh, It was the thing? The first credit for Edward Curtis as an editor was 1923's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He also worked on Phantom of the Opera in 1929, but what editor working at Universal didn't? Uh, And then some of his other films have included... Scarface in 1932, Great Expectations in 1934, Tower of London in 1939, Invisible Agent in 1942, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman in 1944. Ooh. <laughs> he had a hard time with that one. Abbott and Costello Meet Boris Karloff the Killer in 1949, and Winchester 73 in 1950. So a very, very experienced hand in the editing booth. But which hand? The Strange Door was released on December 8th, 1951. It was a success. Oh, good. So So people got paid. Right. (laughs) So a follow-up was immediately put into production, The Black Castle, which is next week's movie. Oh, cool. 
You can find The Strange Door on DVD from Universal in the Boris Karloff collection, and you can also find it on its own on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. Kino does good work. They do. So, folks, hopefully you can grab a copy of that Kino Lorber release or the uh, Boris Karloff collection. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Strange Door from 1951, directed by Joseph Pevney. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Strange Door from 1951, directed by Joseph Pevney. Sarah, what did you think of this movie? Uh, I had a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, Charles Lawton is so much fun to watch in this. Yeah. I had a good time. What did you think? Uh, yeah, about the same. Uh, it was a lot of fun to watch. It was better than I was expecting Yeah. going in. Uh, yeah, it was a good time. It's pretty close to the short story. It just expands yes. motivations for the uncle. And it adds characters, and it adds backstories, and it adds, like, a bunch of stuff. But in the broad strokes, it's the same story. Yeah. So why don't we go over what uh, the film version is like? For sure. So when the film opens, we see the sire de Malatoire uh, and his associates... Um, entering a bar, and they have found themselves a suitable cad and womanizer of the name Dennis de Bullier. Um, And here's where I just do a quick aside that I can't take anyone whose name is Dennis seriously. Dennis is, like, weird because it's one of those names that, like, you just don't think of having, like, existed in history times. Yes. It's the same as, like, um... Chad. Right. You know, like, there's just, like, an image about who this person is that you don't associate with, like, historical setting. Yeah, I mean... And France. It's in the short story, so, like, I have to expect, like, it's not unreasonable. It's just one of those things. It's like how, like, if you go back to stuff set in, like, the 1890s or whatever, you'll find women named Agnes and Gertrude who are, like, hot, like, sexy babes. And it's like, (laughs) wait, what? Because, like, your stereotype of those names is different? For me, my stereotype of Dennis is Dennis the Menace. I think that's reasonable, yeah. Yeah. In the case of this film, Dennis is someone who um, seems to... uh, get along with a ton of ladies, regardless of whether they want him to or not, Mm -hmm. and is just a real scoundrel. His deal seems to be like a, I do what I want kind of mentality. Like, he's not so much out here being like, yes, I shall intentionally fuck people over, uh, because that's Charles Lawton's character. Yes. Um, (laughs) But it's more of a just like, if I want a drink, I'm going to take a drink. If I want to punch you, I'm going to punch you. Like, yeah. Yeah. It seems that Dennis, though, is going to be useful in some of Malatois' plans. Now, we don't really know what these plans are yet. 
Um, but they've set Dennis up to think that he's killed a man and he's running away from the mob from the bar um, and he gets trapped due to this strange door. That's the name of the movie. Yes, it is. Um, so it's very, you know, different setup, um, but he still falls through a strange door, like in the case of the short story. Yeah, we end up in the same place. Yeah. As Dennis makes his way through this very large manor, um, he finds Malatois, and he explains that Dennis is a prisoner and is going to marry his niece. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when I was doing research, I read excerpts of the short story just to make yeah. sure I was understanding things right, and some of the phrasing is the same in the movie. Okay. Which cool. was fun. Yeah. Yeah, I liked that. Now, what's different from the short story is that in the film, Blanche is not pregnant. Yeah. Um, she, there, there just seems to be some ulterior motive by Uncle Molotois to all of this. Yeah, I figure, like, she can't be pregnant for code reasons. Absolutely. She is still in love with a captain. His name is Armad, um, but he seems to have just, like, disappeared for some reason. She hasn't heard from him for, like, a month and doesn't know why. Now, both Dennis and Blanche are like, I don't want to marry this person. Like, Blanche is like, I don't know who this guy is. He seems like a real scoundrel. And Dennis is like, I don't know who this is. I'm a real scoundrel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not worthy of her, basically. Yeah, I shouldn't be marrying this person. I should be off in, like, a Paris brothel somewhere. <laughs> but um, they do start to fall for each other. Uh, Blanche starts to fall for Dennis, by the way. He kind of stands up to her uncle, and he for her because of her virtue. Right. Meanwhile, the Malatois Manor, mansion, uh, castle really, um, is known for uh, their ancestors developing certain torture techniques. And so this castle has a torture dungeon. Yeah, and it's also got all the usual secret passages and absolutely things where you can look through small holes in walls and just, you know, all the usual accoutrements. Um, I like that you used a French word, because we're in France. <laughs> now we hear tortured screaming every so often coming from the basements. But when we eventually go down, we as the camera, Mm -hmm. go down to the torture areas, um, we find that Malatois has one person in particular locked up. Turns out, this is Edmund, Blanche's thought-to-be-dead father. Right. Blanche thinks that she's an orphan, her mom is dead, but her father is locked up. And um, he seems to be just gone insane due to the torture. And there's one servant named Voltan, and this is Boris Karloff's character, um, taking care of Edmund. When the two of them are alone, Edmund reveals that he's not insane. He's actually just putting it on to kind of stay alive in this situation. And um, Voltan shares to him that, you know, you're... Your daughter's going to get married to this real scoundrel. And Edmund's like, you can't let that happen. And Voltan's like, Voltan knows how to make that not happen (laughs) with my murder knife. Yeah. Voltan's mental faculties are vague. Yes. There are times where it's like, there's a lot going on there. And other times where you're like... There's not. There's not. (laughs) No. But um, Charles Lawton's character, 
the sire de Malatois, uh, is like a big sadist, basically, right? Like Absolutely. he gets his he... rocks off on hurting others, right? And that's why his brother Edmund has been pretending to be crazy because, like, then he can like stay alive by like just pretending to be. What am I trying to say? If he was too stoic, then he would be killed because there would be no way to really make him feel pain. Right, exactly. Yeah, like he would have been killed uh, because there's no fun there. Yeah. But this way he remains kind of fun for his brother to torment. So Voltan is going after Dennis with his murder knife, mm-hmm. but he gets interrupted by Blanche coming in. And she's like, oh, Voltan, thank God you're here in the bedchamber for some reason. I need you to help me get Dennis out of here. It's not fair that he's put in this position. And Voltan's like, oh, okay. I mean, I had a way to get him out of here, but I don't think you would like that way, Miss Blanche. He looks like a robot from an Isaac Asimov story, like, stuck between, like, two conflicting directives. Where, like, <laughs> one of his masters had told has told him, like, kill. hey, kill this guy. And the other one is telling him, like, hey, get him out of the castle safely. And he's just like, ah, er, ah. I shall kill him when he's out of the castle safely. Yep, that's basically his conclusion. Voltan is taking Dennis through the castle, and they run into two cronies of Malatoire's. And it turns out one of them is the man that Dennis is supposed to have killed. Mm-hmm. So Dennis is like, ah, I'm, like, I'm... Everything was a setup, yeah. and they fight and they kill those guys. And he's like, "Okay, clearly there's something bigger going on here. I should stay. Blanche is in danger, so he stays." The next day, the wedding happens. During the reception, um, Dennis meets an old friend of his named Count Grassen, who is our good friend Alan Napier. And Grassen's like, "What? What are you doing, bud? Like, what? What game is going on?" And Dennis is like, "No, dude." I'm here against my will, like, everything's terrible, like, you have to get us out of here. And he's, he's like, gotcha! Fu- he's furiously blinking twice. <laughs> and Grasson's like, no worries, um, I'll meet you out back late tonight with my carriage, and we'll get you guys out of here. So, Dennis pretends to be, like, super, super drunk at the end of the party, and they just kind of, like, shove drunk Dennis into the bedchambers, and they're like, ha-ha, wedding night! Mm-hmm. Dennis is not drunk, though, and he grabs Blanche, and he's like, don't worry, we're going to get us out of here, and we'll get you to a different country, and we can annul this sham of a marriage. And she's like, oh, annul? And he's like, well, I mean, if you want to stay married, I'd like to stay married. I really like you. And she's like, I like you, too. Let's stay married. Okay. And then they kiss and hug, and then they go on to escape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Grasson is in the carriage um, asleep. He had too much to drink. As they're escaping, they stop at this graveyard, and they're like, well, what's going on? And then they see that the carriage driver is one of Malatois' men, and Grasson is actually dead. (laughs) Now, they try to run away and escape from this point. Voltan shows up at one point and tries to help protect Blanche, but he gets shot in the process. Dennis and Blanche get taken back to the castle, and Voltan presumes to die in the graveyard. Mm-hmm. Once back at the castle, Malatois um, goes, Oh, you guys are in love. Well, fuck. I wanted you to continue being a scoundrel and completely break Blanche's heart and be a terrible husband, but now you've ruined my whole plan. I like the bit where Dennis is like, 
wait, so why, if you knew we were trying to escape and you wanted to stop us, like, why kill Gross and you could have stopped us at, like, any point along the way? You didn't have to just, like, commit a needless murder. And Charles Lawton is like, well, no, you see, I wanted you to think you had gotten away so that when I trapped you, you'd be, like, the pain would be all the more. Yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. And this is when Malatois kind of explains his whole deal. He says that I was in love with Blanche's mother, but she uh, she led me on, and she ended up choosing my brother, Edmund, instead. So all of this is to punish Blanche's mother. And Blanche is like, yeah, but she's dead, and so is my dad. Like, why, why any Who of this? Who are you punishing? Yeah. And he's like, ah, a family reunion we shall have, and brings them down and shows them Edmund. Locks them in there and turns on this water wheel torture device thing that is um, basically making the walls in the cell where they are all kept close in. Like like a movie serial. Like an episode of Batman 66. Or, yes, a movie serial. (laughs) I was also thinking Batman 66. Do you know they also, I think in one of the actual Batman serials do that. Yes, they do. It's the 1943 serial. And, I mean, obviously Star Wars, but, like, that's in reference to serials, right? It's just a very classic death trap. Absolutely. But in this movie, it's powered by a water wheel. Yeah. Now, in the midst of all of this and getting all of this explained, and like, you know, here's my deal, and here's your dad, and all of that, we keep coming back to Voltan, who is not quite dead yet. (laughs) He gets up out of the graveyard, he swims to the castle upriver, (laughs) and uh, he climbs up by the water wheel, gets shot by one of Malatois' men, and kills, like, that, kills dude. that dude. And in the midst of killing that dude, Malatois comes out and stabs him in the back. So now, and, and so they, they fight, and um, Voltan pushes Malatois off the railing into the water, but manages to get the key. So he has been shot twice. Yes. And stabbed. And, like... Swam up a presumably like not like clean you know no. waterway, and he's not a young guy. No, so he's he's like struggling and stumbling to get to the cell before the walls completely close in. He has like if you were in Skyrim and had like one HP, and you were also moving like you were over encumbered. Like having that one key is like over. Like, Voltan's, like, (laughs) carrying capacity. So he's just, like, yeah, like, stumbling and crawling and dragging himself to the cell. And there are times where he falls down as if he's fainted. We cut the guys in the cell getting, like, closer and closer to being smushed. And then Voltan gets up and, like, crawls closer. And, um, now we do get to see uh, Malatois' demise. He's trying to climb up. And he gets stuck in the machinery of the water wheel. And um, off screen, we're back with the people in the cell. The walls stop coming in. And we cut back to the water wheel and we just see like a hand sticking out. Yeah. Which is like pretty cool. Pretty good. Pretty good way of like getting that across without like being able to show Charles Lawton get ground up in the gears of a water wheel. Yeah. Um, and in the full climax, um, it's, it's, you know that, um, that Mexican standoff scene in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? Uh-huh. Where, like, the three 
bad guys are like staring at each other. Sure. And Leone just like drags that thing out, and you're just like on the edge of your seat. Yeah. Well, um, Pevney is trying to do something similar here in um, Voltan just collapsing just out of reach of the cell. And then the cell walls start closing in again. Um, they, they start up again. And they're like, no, Voltan, you're our only hope. We need that key. Please. And Voltan's like, uh, and like trying to like push it with his fingers. And it's just like... He's like inching closer, <laughs> like so slowly. And so they finally, finally get the key. And then... Fucking Dennis is having a hell of a time getting it into the keyhole. Yeah, because he can't see where it is. And it's like, oh my god, just let them get out. Like, it's comical. They get out and they see the walls smush together and destroy the furniture, but it's fine. Next scene, Edmund's gotten a shave. He's in nice clothes. They've installed um, handles on that strange door, so now you can actually open it and get out. And he goes to Blanche and Dennis, and he's like, Dennis, you can leave any time. We really appreciate all that you've done. But this door that brought you into our lives now allows you to leave our lives as well. And Dennis is like, no, I think I'll be a happy prisoner here, and kisses Blanche, and that's the end. Yeah, I'm married into a rich family. This is dope, actually. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah, um, this is a really fun movie. It's a lot of fun. Um, a big part of how fun it is is Lawton, as I said. Um, his performance is reminiscent of Dr. Moreau. Yeah, he's really hamming it up um, and really clearly enjoying himself. Mm-hmm. He is, like, one degree removed from, like, a Batman 66 villain. Absolutely. Charles Lawton didn't live long enough to be on Batman 66, but this movie gives you a good hint of what he would have been like on that show if he had. I feel like if he had been alive, they probably would have had him as King Tut. Maybe, or he would have also been a good penguin. That's true. Granted, like, Burgess Meredith, like... Like, he does that laugh perfectly, like, I would not want to change him up. Yeah. Um, anyways, back to this movie. Um, I think also the servants that we see, um, I didn't mention them because I didn't really need to, but, um, their, uh, on screen names are Kobo, Talon, and Renville. I really like Talon. Yeah. Um, he was, uh, a fun thing to watch because he both hates Malatois, but also is, like, sticking it to Dennis when he can. He seems to, like, okay, so... This, that that comes into, like, a larger point I have, which is the script for this is a lot smarter and more well-written than you'd expect from a movie like this. Absolutely. Like, all the characters have really good, you know, minimum two-dimensional characterization. Um, and, yeah, like you, I really picked up on the henchmen and the fact that they were all given, like, personalities and philosophies that, like, explained just why the heck they work for this guy. Yeah. Because, like, evil villains in movies, like, always have all these henchmen, and it's like, you know, you're just sitting there having to suppose that, like, the pay and the benefits are really good or something. (laughs) Because, like, you're sitting there going, like, man, why would you work for the Joker? But, like, in this movie, like, Malatois calls Talon, like, his dog, and Talon's just like, yep. That's what I am. I'm a dog. Like, he clearly, like, kind of hates himself, but, like, hates 
Malatois and then like takes that out on Dennis and it's just like this really interesting kind of guy who like clearly would like shift in whatever way he thinks is going to like get him the best opportunity. Like yeah, he's fully happy to consider taking a bribe, but Dennis doesn't have anything to actually offer him. So he's like gonna have to pass then, dude. Yeah. And then Corbeau, who's, like, Malatois' like, right-hand man, has this, like, really interesting thing about, like, you know, he feels like he has no purpose in life, and, like, he doesn't understand, like, you know, I, I, I was born without purpose, I'll die without purpose, like, I have nothing to dedicate my life to, whereas Malatois has, like, dedicated his whole life to, like, this revenge against his brother and so in Corbo's mind that means like oh you have a purpose in life you figured out why you're here therefore you are superior to me and therefore I should serve you which is like a, a fascinatingly fucked up philosophy and it, I just really appreciated like seeing and it doesn't take long like it's just like a little like a line here or there you know, we don't have to go into, like, oh, here's Talon's origin story and his tragic backstory. Based and, on a farm yeah, where uh, a kid would come in and harass your yeah, chickens. Yeah, it's like, we don't need any of that. <laughs> it's just, like, a few lines here or there that really makes the difference. Yeah. I wasn't sure about Karloff in this role. I was a little disappointed that he was playing almost, like, second fiddle. To everyone in this movie. He's, he's not in it a whole lot. His role is a lot smaller than you'd think, given that he has second billing. But it is, like, a key role for the story. Yeah. Right? Like, you can't just take Voltan out of the movie. So it is a larger role than, like, say... Lugosi. Right. Like, if Lugosi had been in this movie, Voltan would have just been the guy who, like, shuffles through the hallways to, like, open the cage door... And then shuffle away and say, yes, master, coming and going. Yeah, I feel like, like, that. that's the thing for me with this, because, like, this is a role that I would expect Lugosi to do, but Lugosi was always used as a misdirect, mm-hmm. whereas Karloff at least is given the opportunity to be, like, a... a, a Almost like a little bit of a heroic character here. Yeah, he's he's integral to the plot, and... There's a lot of stuff with Voltan that, like, I wonder how much was on the page and how much is just Karloff. Absolutely. I mean, because Karloff, if he wasn't already good at acting, he has the years of experience to back up. So he, like, doubly knows what he's doing here. Yeah, and he's always good at, like, giving more depth to characters who could have been paper thin. Like, Voltan is very interesting because he's, like, singularly, like, loyal and as you said earlier, like, he's cleverer than Malatois thinks he is, but he's not really all there either, you know? And, like, he's, he, you know, but he's also a guy who will crawl to the shoreline, <laughs> swim upstream, crawl up a water wheel, like, take a, 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 a shot to the gut twice and then like a knife to the back and then like kill some dudes and then drag himself across like a dun- <laughs> a dirty dungeon floor to get to you to give you the key you need you know yes like uh... like that that whole sequence you should just edit 
you know, together all of the Voltan parts because they, they cut back and forth for suspense reasons, right? You should edit together all the Voltan parts and turn it into like a FedEx commercial, right? With the like, <laughs> when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. Yeah. USPS. Yeah. Through rain and sleet right. and snow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of Voltan's role, the seeming dedication Voltan has in getting this key to his master it is made comical by the amount of like attempts at tension that they're trying to do here of like him shuffling and falling and then getting back up and like trying to get yeah, the key just... a little closer they're just like pulling it too thin well it's it it, it goes from being tension to being, like, one of those family guy jokes where the joke is, like, that it's gone on way too long. Absolutely. Um, and we've talked in the past about, like, the thin line between horror and comedy, Mm -hmm. and this is a great example of that, um, thin line between tension and comedy. Yeah. Yeah. I do like that they sort of use both sides of Boris Karloff, because, like, Karloff basically does two kinds of persona. And sometimes he gets to do both in one movie, but, like, they are, like, kindly old Karloff, Mm -hmm. and then, like, you know, the menacing psycho Karloff. And he gets to, like, have his knife and, like, come up behind Dennis, like, a couple times to kill him, but then he's also like, oh, mistress, like, of course I'll help you. And, like, so they do get to, like, utilize all the parts of the Karloff, you know? I am definitely more of a fan of menacing Karloff, Mm. especially when he's in a role, like in Bedlam, where he's pulling all the strings. Yeah. I also really enjoyed uh, Richard Stapley as Dennis. Yeah, I was surprised that he was able to make it more than just, like, I am the hero. Yes, he was much better than I was expecting because he delivered a male lead in one of these movies who actually has, like, personality and, like, character traits. I wonder if it's because he's allowed to be a little bit of a scoundrel. Yes. He can do the Han Solo thing rather than having to be absolutely, like, perfect. Yeah, he's not like, I'm Dick Darrington, hero <laughs> at large. If, um... Remember to brush your teeth. <laughs> I think Han Solo's a really good comparison point here, right? Because it's right along with, like, then he gets the girl in the end and, like, the whole, like, they don't like each other at first because he's a scoundrel and she's a princess. And, you know, it yeah, absolutely, totally apt. He's also very handsome. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I think also the changes made to Dennis are really smart here in terms of, like, not just giving him more personality and more of a character... But, like, the Dennis of this movie is, like, you know, I don't know, like, a guy in his early 20s who, you know, is just, like, I'm in the time of my life where I'm supposed to kind of fuck around and, like, not this be too... This is my leap year before college. Right, yeah. Like, I'm, you know, I'm just going to get into trouble and, and do whatever I want. And the Dennis in the short story, the way you described him, was, like, a veteran cavalier, which would make him, like, you know, like, some middle-aged war vet. Yeah, like, he does speak in the short story about um, being a bit of a scoundrel in his Mm -hmm, youth, mm -hmm. but it, to me, seemed like it was, like, that was when I was young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, we could have very easily gotten, like, the, you know, 
40-year-old lead actor, 18-year-old lead actress, like, bit, right? Yeah, and we but don't... they feel very much in close in age here. Yes, yeah, yeah. The sets in this movie are really great. Yeah, the sets, the costumes are all really well done. Um, like, I don't know if this house and its dungeons were built for this movie. Uh, if they were taken from another movie, it's at least not a movie we've seen for the show, so it's not like the sets are are ones we've seen over and over again, right? They're new to us. And if they were built for this movie, that's even more impressive. I don't know what to think about it, because on the one hand... They're like, this is a B movie. Mm-hmm. We're going back to making B movies, mm-hmm. and we're not spending money on this because we don't have money. Mm-hmm. But yet, it looks like they spent money on it. So oh, I don't yeah. know if it's just that they had access to this stuff because of like having only made A pictures for the last four years or whatever. Right. But yeah, it really amps up the atmosphere. Yeah, and you know the cinematography's great. There's lots of moving camera. There's lots of good shots and angles and stuff. The directing is really good. Uh, other than, as you say, Pevney tries to like push the, the tension at the end too much. He doesn't quite know where that line is. Yeah, right? this is what, his seventh film? Sixth. Sixth. So I think like knowing his work in the Star Trek era, yeah. maybe it's also because you're trying to pump out that stuff week in, week out, um, but it feels like he got a really good control over managing tone, whereas here he's a little clumsy. Well, you can't drag things out too long on network television. (laughs) Because you got to cut for commercial. Yeah, exactly. The quality of filmmaking here, it was a lot higher in pretty much every department than what I was expecting. Same. Even down to the writing, um, we've seen cases where people have taken short stories or even novels and just done not the best job in adapting um but the strange door is a great example of how you can expand a story to make it into a full-length film without it being like filler everything adds yes to the premise of the film like they basically expanded why the uncle is doing things because in the short story they describe his him as evil um, right. doing evil things. So here it's like, well, why is he making them marry? Especially yeah. if Blanche isn't pregnant. Yeah, and like, in the short story, like, okay, so you have to force her to get married because she got pregnant by some dude. Fine. But the like, and you have to do it in 24 hours or I murder you and also him, was like completely unmotivated, right? It was just like, because I'm the villain. Yeah. So like, this is, I would say, an improvement on the short story because, you know, fuck. Stuff makes sense now. Yeah. And the short story, the way it ends is, like, the guy comes in, he's like, oh, good, you're you're both in love, you're getting married, perfect. And has, like, an air of, like, I knew this would happen. Yeah. As everyone knows, threats of murder are the best way to get a romance a bloomin'. So, here's the thing, though, Sarah. It's not horror? No. It's a gothic melodrama? Well, I would, yes, it is. But, like, I also think, okay, so it has the trappings of a universal horror movie, right? Like, they've got a period setting, they've got... Boris Karloff. They've got fucking... Torture. Dry ice for days. Yes. Just the, everything is just pumped full of that universal (laughs) fucking smoke machine, just going full bore all the time. You got dungeons, you got family drama, you got secret passages through a mansion, like, you got all these horror sort of trappings, but, um... 
the thing that this felt the most like, yes, gothic melodrama, but it kind of felt like a more macabre than usual period adventure movie. Like, the mm-hmm. lead character here could have been, like, Zorro. Like, it, you know, yeah. like, it's got this very, like, active hero who, like, literally, like, does the thing where you jump from a table onto, like, a chandelier to, like, swing over and, like, kick <laughs> yeah, a dude. Yeah, that was fun. And, like, there's just, like, a lot of, like, numerous, like, fist fights and sword fights and shit in this movie. You've got the, like, maniacal, like, villain who's, like, locking you into death traps and then leaving to not watch you die. <laughs> and then you've got, like, you know, your narrow escapes and your happy endings. It, it It's an adventure movie, right? Like, it, it's a serial, except that it's in one part, and it's well-written and well-made and well-acted. <laughs> yeah, it reminded me of um, the Todd Slaughter movies we watched. Mm. Um, not so much for, like, the action that you, you just described, but the idea of, like, this older guy is evil... For not really any specific reason. Like, he has a motivation for revenge, but it's not like... Like, he was wrong in his mind in the first place. Yeah, he's he's a sadist, right? So, yeah. But, yeah, like, it's that kind of feel. It's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a macabre-flavored adventure movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's like if you dropped, like, Han Solo into an Edgar Allan Poe story. <laughs> right? Maybe Indiana Jones. Right, Indiana Jones. Sure, sure, Because then sure. you're not, like, having Han Solo go, like, where's your technology? Uh, I mean, that's not... I, a Han Solo-type character is what I meant. Yeah, like, but not, you said Han not Solo, literally. literally. Han, oh, no, um, I... Also, I feel like Han Solo would have fucked up more times. Yeah, Indiana Jones always has his shit in order, at least a little bit. Yes. Um, cool. Well, I'm glad that we agree about that. Um, so we're going on to the non-applicable list for this one. Yeah, but it is something I recommend you check out if you have a spare hour and a half um, and have access to this movie. It is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's on, as I said, Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. Or if you do pick up the Boris Karloff collection from Universal, uh, that DVD set also has The Night Key, which is a 1937 like crime movie that he was in. Tower of London, where he plays the executioner in this historical drama with Basil Rathbone as um, Richard III. Oh, and it's about like it's about Richard III killing those two young boys in the tower. Yeah, um, and it's it, it's like this in the sense that it has the flavor of a universal horror movie, but it's not a horror movie. Yeah, uh, and then it's got the climax from 1944, which we watched on the show, and then this movie, and then uh, it has next week's movie. The Black Castle? That's right. Hmm. Well, folks, if you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can head to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box, where you can drop us a line. Um, You can also reach us through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. You can subscribe to the show using your podcast app of choice using our RSS feed. And if you want to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review. Uh, On Apple Podcasts is the most helpful place to do that, but anywhere where it's possible really helps the show out by increasing its visibility. 
you can also help us out by just recommending us to folk uh, online. You know, um, the responsible people who are still social distancing might want some podcast recommendations to pass the time indoors, uh, you know, while they do dishes or whatever. So let them know about us through social media and other distanced forms of communication. Uh, (laughs) Don't go over to their house. Yell at it at people walking on the street. Well, yell at them to wear a mask first and then yell at them to listen to Scream Scene. <laughs> you know, like, like, get a mask and listen to Scream Scene at ScreamScenePodcast.tumblr.com. <laughs> like that. Another way to help the show out, if you have the means, is to head over to Patreon.com slash ScreamScenePodcast, where you can sign up to be a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 level get access to weekly bonus audio, uh, which mostly consists of cut content from past episodes. It's usually outtakes and bloopers. Sometimes it's just like we get off on weird tangents. Uh, and other what? And other times it's like research that we did that ended up not being relevant, but is still interesting to hear mm-hmm. on its own. Or cut for time, because we do tend to go on. Yes. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, I've told you several times already. Oh, right, yeah, Black Friday. <laughs> what is it, Black Castle? The Black Castle, the yes. The Black Castle. Uh, which was a direct sort of follow-up to this movie. Um, so we'll see if it's horror. Yeah. But is, it, is, is it, like... A sequel in terms of, like, narrative? Or is no. it a sequel in terms of the people involved? No, it's it's let's get the same people to make the same movie, you know, again, but different kind of thing, right? Uh, so that's from 1952. It literally comes out, like, a year after this movie. Uh, it's our only movie for 1952. Oh, dang. Yeah. Well, join us next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.